Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 19, it says. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. One of the key themes in the second letter of Peter is the apostles exhortation to the saints to grow in the knowledge of God and to grow in the scriptures. In the first chapter, Peter proclaims the righteousness of God in verses one through four, the virtues of God that are made available to the saints in verses five through nine, the revelation of God to the apostle of God in verses 12 through 15, the transfiguration of the son of God in verses 16 through 18. And now Peter's focus will be on the inspiration of the word of God in verses 19 through 21. You see, the Bible is a document that gives us the answers to the most frequently asked questions. How do we know we're really saved? How do we know that the gospel of salvation is true? How do we know that Jesus is the savior of the world? Peter, at the very end of his ministry, as he approaches death's door, he reminds the Christians that Jesus in the story of Jesus isn't some product of an overactive imagination. The story of Jesus isn't a fable or wishful thinking on the part of desperate disciples, but rather it is the message of the power and the coming of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of salvation in verse 16. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus's majesty at the transfiguration in verses 16, 17 and 18. And the scripture itself is a more sure account of the majesty, the ministry and the message of Jesus in verses 19 through 21. Now, remember, as we've studied the second epistle of Peter, we remember that the Christian life begins in faith, faith in a person in verses one and two, faith in God's power in verse three. But it also includes faith in God's promises in verse four and the faith that results in spiritual growth in verses five through seven. That spiritual growth is personal and practical in verses eight through eleven. We human beings are here. We make our appearance for a very brief time. We live, we die. But guess what? The word of God remains and abides. The word of God remains and abides forever. Experiences fade. People disappear. But the word of God shines in the darkness. And what does the word of God accomplish? The word of God brings light. But it brings way more than just light. According to the Bible, the authors and its several prophecies were Brought to us by God himself. The prophecies and the scriptures came by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter believes and attests to the Old Testament's authorability. 
its reliability, its dependability by making three strong claims. He will claim the inspiration of the scriptures. He will claim the illumination of the scriptures. He will claim the confirmation of the scriptures. And so we begin with the confirmation. The word of God is sure. Look at the first verse in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. We could rephrase this. We have The prophetic word as a surer confirmation in verses 16 through 18. Remember, Peter reminded the readers that he was an eyewitness. He was a first hand witness of the accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. His was an authentic message personally seen by him. But now Peter says we have the prophetic word confirmed. One of the ways of thinking about this is Peter clearly finds value in his personal witness of the majesty of Jesus, seeing with his own eyes, hearing with his own ears, the voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. But now Peter says something else that we have something more valuable, more reliable More confirmed than just simply his testimony and his eyewitness. Peter would be the first one to tell you that the Bible's declaration and explanation surrounding the Messiah, the scripture's testimony concerning the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus comprise an attestation of the gospel. You know, it's interesting to me. If we could go back in time. Or we could take a person from the past and bring them into the present. If somehow you knew that Peter, James or John were in this pulpit at this very moment, we would have packed the place out. But the reality is that the testimony of Peter, James and John is contained in the book that most of you brought with you and that it is far more valuable Peter reminds the reader that the scriptures are a powerful and trustworthy source in order to get answers to the questions that you have. We live in a world where symbol is often more valued than substance and experience is more valuable than truth. You know, in World War Two this week, I I heard the story of an American soldier who was met by a South Sea Islander coming from his hut and the Islander hoping to find some common ground with the soldier. He brought out his Bible and his Bible had been given to him a decade earlier by a missionary and the Islander hoping to, again, provide some common ground, brought it out. And he said, this is my most prized possession. In it, it contains the words of truth and life and hope. And the soldier looked at him with disgust and disdain. And the soldier said, we've outgrown that book. And the islander smiled and refused to brush. He just simply brushed aside the slight. And he says, it's a good thing we haven't over outgrown it here. Otherwise, we would have been making every effort to make you our next meal. Because you see, when the gospel of hope came to us, we were killing each other and eating each other for dinner. 
when he says that we have the sure word of prophecy confirmed, he is talking about the reality of the fact that the prophecies in the Bible have come true over and over and over again. Do you realize that the Bible is different from every single book in all of human history because it contains in advance prophecies Talking about things that have come true. Someone has counted at least 300 prophecies surrounding the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I have a note in my Bible. It says prophecy is confirmed by Fulfillment in part fulfilled prophecy is a proof of inspiration because the scripture predictions of future events were uttered so long before the events took place that no human sagacity or foresight could have anticipated them. And these predictions are so detailed, so minute, so specific as to exclude the possibility that they were simply fortunate guesses. Hundreds of predictions concerning Israel, the land of Canaan, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, numerous personages so ancient, so singular, so seemingly improbable, as well as detailed and definite that no mortal could have anticipated them. And have been fulfilled by the natural elements and by men who were ignorant of them or who utterly disbelieved them or who struggled with frantic desperation to avoid their fulfillment. It is certain, therefore, that the scriptures which contain them are inspired for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in his book. The book of lists, H.L. Wilmington gives 39 descriptions of Christ in the Old Testament. If you want to follow along, what I would recommend that you do is you turn all the way to the front of your Bible and go to the table of contents and begin by putting your finger on the book of Genesis. He says 39 descriptions of Christ are given in all 39 books. Jesus, the Christ, is called the seed of the woman in Shiloh, Genesis 3, 15 and 49, 10. The Passover lamb in Exodus, the anointed high priest in Leviticus, the star of Jacob and the brazen serpent in Deuteronomy, the prophet who's like Moses, the great rock in Numbers, the captain of the Lord of hosts in Joshua, the messenger of the Lord in the book of Judges, the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, the great judge in the first Samuel, the seed of David in second Samuel. Samuel, the Lord God of Israel in first Kings, the Lord God of the Cherubim in second Kings, God, our salvation in first Chronicles, God of our fathers, second Chronicles, the Lord of heaven and earth in the book of Ezra, the covenant keeping God in Nehemiah. The God of providence in Esther, the risen and returning redeemer in the book of Job, the anointed son, the holy one, the good shepherd, the king of glory in the book of Psalms, the wisdom of God in Proverbs eight, the one who is above the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, chief among 10,000, altogether lovely in the song of Solomon, the virgin born Emmanuel, who is wonderful counselor, the mighty God in the book of Isaiah, the Lord, our righteousness in Jeremiah. The faithful and compassionate God in Lamentations 3, 22 and 31 and 33. The Lord who is there in the book of Ezekiel. The stone who is the son of God, the son of man in Daniel chapter 2. 
Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 7, the king of the resurrection in Hosea 13, 9, the God of the battle and the giver of the Holy Spirit in Joel chapter 2, the God of hosts and the plumb line, Amos chapter 4, verse 13, the destroyer of the proud in Obadiah 8, the risen prophet, God of the second choice and the long suffering one, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 4, the God of Jacob, who's born in Bethlehem, who pardons sinners in Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 7. The avenging God, the bringer of good news, Nahum chapter 1. The everlasting, pure, glorious, and anointed one, Habakkuk chapter 1. The king of Israel, Zephaniah 3.15. The desire of the nations, Haggai chapter 2 verse 7. And the branch, the builder, the king who is triumphal, who is pierced, who will come back again in the book of Zechariah. The son of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. Carl F.H. Henry was fond of saying, there's really only one inevitability, and that is the necessity that the scripture must be fulfilled. Remember, that's what Jesus said, that it comes from God and that it cannot be broken. So the word of God is confirmed. But guess what? The word of God also shines. So we go from confirmation to illumination. Look at the end of verse 19, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God confirms the ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament documents that it provides light and darkness. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, when Paul went to speak to the Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the other Greek philosophers, he spoke of a God who wasn't very far from each and every one of us in Acts chapter 17. That we used to in the past grope in a place of darkness, blinded by sin, but we who were in darkness have now been given a great light so we can understand our condition. As a matter of fact, the word translated dark can also mean dry, but it can also mean dirty. According to the Greek scholar Vincent, the word was also associated with squalor, with neglect, with darkness. We use words like gloomy, dismal, dreary, bleak, grim, joyless, cheerless, hopeless. That's the world that the Old Testament pictures, a world darkened by sin, clouded by rebellion. So when we live in a world that is dark, when we live in a world that's filled with rebellion, what do we do? We look for the scriptures to give us light and illumination. No wonder the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet. How can prophecies written thousands of years ago by people from another time and place and culture and language find light for us and hope for us and information for us? It's the subject of one of the most famous Christmas carols that we sing. You know the 
You know the song and you know the words. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You know it. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's what Peter has in mind in this passage. The darkness breaks and the sun comes up and the light shines inside of your heart and all of the wickedness and the darkness and the emptiness. And the terrifying circumstances begins to flood the thrill of hope. You mean my sin could be forgiven? You mean that there is a God who is willing to do something about my circumstances? That's the point. The Old Testament answers questions. Why do we find ourselves in the circumstance we find ourselves in? We're sinners in need of a savior. Our our mother and our father, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And God has taken all of human history as a course in which human beings could be redeemed and reconciled to God. They give us information about the incarnation of Jesus in Bethlehem, how he will be born from a specific lineage. A promise is made to Abraham and a promise is made to Isaac and a promise is made to Jacob and a promise is made to Judah and a promise is made to David. And all of human history becomes swept in a direction that is going to result in a Messiah coming and redeeming us. That's what the Old Testament does. It gives us information not only about the coming of Messiah, but the second coming of Messiah and that there will be a terrible judgment and there will be great battles and there will be a glorious millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, the expression until the day dawns is a single Greek verb. Diagodzo. It only appears here in the in the New Testament, and it literally means to penetrate the darkness and shine through so that you can see. I don't know if you've ever been in a dark circumstance where it was pitch black. It's interesting how even one tiny light can occupy a place. And the word daystar, by the way, is one word in the Greek language, phosphoros. In the Spanish language, it's exactly the same. In Latin, phosphoros. We use the word match to translate that. Phos is light. Pharos means to bear. It literally means bearing light or the light bearer. The word was used of the morning star Venus because it was in the pitch blackness of the darkness. When you saw that first expression of light, you knew that a new day was coming. And that's part of the point that Peter is making, that with the presence of the Messiah, with the new day dawning, with the arrival of the Messiah, we have the first light of eternal life and everlasting shining. That's the point that he's making. 
And so the Old Testament scriptures shine through dark places and then give us exacting details of the condition of our heart, that we're sinners in need of a savior. The prophets denounced human beings as sinful and depraved. (laughs) I read the story of a of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching a group of six year olds. And they were going through the book of Genesis and they were talking about Noah's flood and they were talking about how Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three daughters spent 120 days on this ark. And the teacher said to one six year old, do you think Noah spent part of his time enjoying fishing? And the six year old said, no. What makes you say that? Two worms. Hello. You know what happens when you begin to inform someone with a biblical worldview, they begin to process all information in light of what you've told them. You know, there's a reason why we want our children to believe that the Bible's true in the beginning. It's because we believe it's true in the middle and we believe it's true in the end. Jesus is called the morning star in the book of Revelation, chapter two, verse twenty eight and Revelation, chapter twenty two, verse sixteen. Luke's gospel calls Jesus the day spring from on high in Luke, chapter one, verse seventy eight. No wonder Peter says, take heed to obey it. It's one thing to read it. It's even another thing to believe it. But we're called on as men and women of God to obey it. At the post office, a lady was putting a Bible in the mail for a relative. And, you know, the post office asked, is there anything dangerous in this package? Can anything be broken in this passage? And the lady said, yeah, the Ten Commandments, they're broken every day. (laughs) The rising takes place in your heart. The emphasis is on what goes on in the inside. The second coming isn't simply an event that will take place in the future. It's that. But the reality is that Jesus shows up in time and space. And I think that Peter is pointing to the transformation of the heart and the mind as the prophetic scriptures are heard or read or believed. Peter's making a remarkable statement. The truth in the Bible will continue to point people to the ultimate source of truth. That's what he's saying. The Lord God himself and the person of Jesus Christ is the everlasting shining light. That's the point. And so we see the word of God. Is spirit given. He's talked about confirmation, illumination, but now his focus is on inspiration. Look at verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Look at the verb first, it's an action word. Knowing. Genetai. It means becomes or comes about knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture of any private the word is 
Hideous. It literally means one's own. It's, it appears 115 times in the New Testament. The interpretation, epilesis, from the verb epileo, to loose, to solve, to explain. And so it's translated interpretation. That word interpretation in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, verse 34, is translated expounded. In the book of Acts, 19.39, it's translated to be determined in the sense of a judicial pronouncement like a court. In other words, when a judge hears the evidence and then rules in a case, the judge will say guilty or not guilty. Can you imagine a defendant saying to a judge, that's just your opinion. That's your interpretation. Yeah. But here's the problem. Clearly, a worldly judge can be confused and misled with incomplete or inaccurate evidence. But a judge has powers that other people don't have, and that is to rule concerning the evidence, which has consequences for each and every one of us. The meaning then becomes here that the interpretation isn't a matter of private interpretation. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that I would think about it, one Bible scholar translated this. No prophecy of scripture is of its own unfolding. Some people have read this passage and come to the wrong conclusion. Well, we have no right to read the Bible for ourselves. But nothing could be further from the truth. Scholars have long debated the meaning of this passage. Some believe that Peter's focus is on the interpretation of the scripture. Others are convinced that he's speaking of the origination of the scripture. The scholar who believes that Peter's referring to the interpretation of the scripture points to the context, the very next passage in chapter two. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, talking about the way people interpret and apply the truth. I have no doubt that the correct translation probably is no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. I think that that's the way the NIV renders this particular verse. And again, the very next verse demands this meaning. Peter is clear. The Holy Spirit is the author of the scripture. True or false? That is true. The Holy Spirit is the author of the scripture. And so I'm going to suggest to you that what Peter is saying is that the Holy Spirit has the right to interpret what he himself has said. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the true interpreter of the scriptures. Peter believed the men who wrote the Old Testament scriptures were recording the word of God, not their own ideas. Let me be clear here. Peter believed the Old Testament writers were recording God's mind and God's ideas, God's thoughts, God's interpretations and observations. 
The men who wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit guaranteed that what they wrote was both accurate and true. John Calvin said in his commentary on Second Peter, quote, they, the prophets, did not blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgments, unquote. They were carried. They were moved. They were enabled, if you will, to put God's thoughts into human communication. Now, this is, of course, contrasted with the false prophets who made up what they would say out of their own foolish and fallen imagination. Ezekiel points out the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet when he wrote in Ezekiel 13:3, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit. They have seen nothing. And there's the contrast. One in records the ideas of God and the one records their own ideas. If the passage refers to the origination or the interpretation of the Bible, in either instance, the bottom line remains. The scripture is from God, inspired, authentic. Reliable. It comes from God. All of it comes from God. Whether you're reading the first 11 chapters of Genesis on the origin of the universe, whether you're reading the lamentation of Jeremiah, whether you're reading the tender Psalms, whether you're reading the tragic story of sin and rebellion in the book of Judges, you're reading God's message. Some suggest that no individual Christian can pick up the Bible and interpret it for himself or herself. Peter says, no, God speaks for himself and that it is not the credentials of the person reading the book, but rather the God who is the source of the book. As a matter of fact. R.A. Torrey, in his wonderful little book called The Importance and Value of Proper Bible Study, gives 15 principles of biblical interpretation. Now, hermeneutics is what's called the science and art of biblical interpretation. It's the way we look at a text and we begin to understand what the text says. By the way, the principles of biblical interpretation are posted on our website. It will be at calvarycsd.org. It will be attached to my, my notes. If you go to our website and you click on the item called resources, you're going to come to a series of resources. And one of them will be principles of biblical interpretation from Dr. R.A. Torrey. And he gives 15 and I'm going to give them to you rather quickly. Number one, here's how he begins. Do you want to understand the Bible? Do you want to understand what it means and what it says? Here's number one on the top of his list. Get absolutely right with God yourself by the absolute surrender of your will to him. Isn't that great? Do you want to hear from God and hear what God has to say? Then get right with God. Make sure you've repented of your sin and you've accepted Christ. Number two, be determined to find out just what God intended to teach and not what you wish him to teach. 
Number three, get the most accurate text. Number four, find the most exact and literal meaning of the text. Number five, note the exact force of each word used. Number six, interpret the words used in any verse according to its biblical usage. Number seven, interpret the words of each author in the Bible with a regard to the particular usage of that author. In other words, the way John uses a word and Matthew uses a word and Peter uses a word might be a slightly different. James may something say something a little different from Paul. Interpret individual verses with a regard to the context. That's number eight. Interpret individual verses with regard to context. Where does it appear in the passage? What is said before? What is said afterwards? Number nine. Interpret individual passages in the light of parallel or related passages. Number 10, interpret obscure passages in the light of passages that are perfectly plain. Another way of saying that is communicate what is clear by what is clear. In other words, interpret something that is unclear by something that is clear, not the other way around. Clear informs unclear. Not unclear informs clear. The way my pastor put this, don't give up what you know for what you don't know. What do you know? I know that the Bible is true and I know that Jesus Christ is Lord and I know that he forgives sinners. Number 11, interpret any passage in the Bible as those who were addressed would have understood it. You know what that means? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It had a meaning when it was written and it had a meaning to the people who were receiving it. And number 12, interpret what what belongs to the Christian is belonging to the Christian. What belongs to the Jew is belonging to the Jew. What belongs to the Gentile is belonging to the Gentile. Number 13, interpret each writer with a view to the opinions the writer opposed. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. If a one writer says you're saved by grace through faith alone, the writer isn't going to say you're saved by grace alone plus something else. You can't have it both ways. You can't be saved by grace alone plus something else if you're saved by grace alone. Number 14, interpret poetry as poetry, interpret prose as prose. In other words, pay close attention to the genre of literature, prophecy, history, poetry. And number 15, the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. Gina Geraci is not the best interpreter of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. And so. There is no private source. There is no secret source. There is no human source. The Bible is God's word. That's the point. In verse 21, look what it says. For prophecy never came by the will of man, 
But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The old King James translates this. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In ancient times, the word moved was used to describe a ship on the water. In other words, if you've ever been to the beach or if you've ever watched an ocean going vessel, you'll watch as the sails come up and the wind blows and the wind fills the sail and then pushes the vessel in the direction that it needs to go. And so this same word was used to describe a ship in the water in full sail. And so in a sense, in a figurative sense, this is what happened to the Old Testament writers. They hoisted their sails and the Holy Spirit of God blew in them the the direction that they needed to go in major Bible themes. Lewis Sperry Schaefer and John Walberg write, quote, as the New Testament was written, the writers were conscious that they were guided by the spirit of God and freely claimed that the New Testament was inspired equally with the old, just as David wrote by the spirit. Remember, in Matthew twenty two forty three, Jesus himself said that David wrote as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And the psalmist was inspired, it says in Hebrews 3, 7, in Psalm 95, 7. The New Testament claims an equal inspiration in 1 Timothy 5, 18. Both Deuteronomy 25, 4 and Luke 10, verse 7 are quoted together as equally inspired scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, if you just turn the page to verse 15, it says, And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You know what Peter's saying? God used Paul to speak to us a divine communication. As a matter of fact, in the text, in the Greek language, the last sentence literally reads, being born along, Pharaoh, Menoi, by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. Charles Big translates this was born as it came from heaven to man. And this is perhaps the strongest statement in the New Testament about the divine origin, about the divine authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And clearly another strong statement is made by Peter's fellow servant, Paul, in Second Timothy three sixteen, where he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word translated inspiration is theo, God, neustos, breath or wind. The idea is that it is God breathed. In other words, when you inhale, whatever it is that you inhale, it becomes a part of you. And when you exhale, you are exhaling 
a part of you. The point that Paul is making in Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16, when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it is God breathed. That means that the moment that it proceeds from God, it proceeds from God in all of his character and all of his perfections. Question. Is God capable of error? Is God capable of being the author of wickedness or error? And see, this is the point that the scriptures are making. The Bible comes from God. And see, there's the rub. The rub is it comes from God as a divine communication. But what about the parts that you don't agree with? Or the parts that you don't believe? And no wonder Paul writes, it has supreme authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. How does God do that? How does he inspire the scripture, allowing for human individuality and authorship and at the same time produce a document that is from God and without error? You know, if I were to ask you any other question. How did God create the heavens and the earth? How do you explain reality and existence? How do you explain That the eternal self-existent God could become a human being. Never jeopardizing whatever it means to be God and fully and completely entering into humanity's circumstances. Let me give you an illustration. Just like a boat carries passengers to their final destination. And just like people are free to roam about the boat, their freedom only extends to the bow, to the front of the ship and to the rear of the ship and to the left of the ship and the right of the ship. If you leave the ship, you're no longer in the ship, you're in the water. Just like that, God gave freedom to people. To move about the circumstances of their humanity, all the while pointing the boat in the direction that it would go. I know that the explanation isn't complete. I know that the issue of illumination and inspiration in some very real senses somehow taxes the very limits of our comprehension and explanation. But make no mistake about it. The Bible's true. You know, D.L. Moody's favorite sermon was, was one given by R.A. Torrey. And that's the other thing I want to point out to you. Um, there is a, a, a link that's going to be posted at our website. It is to the R.A. Torrey archive. And there you'll find a complete sermon by R.A. Torrey entitled 10 Reasons Why I Believe the Bible is True. When D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey would go about the country and they would visit overseas, often Moody would say, Torrey, teach that message on why I believe the Bible is the word of God. In his 10 reasons, Torrey wrote, number one, the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, the first and foremost reason why Tory believed that the Bible was true is because Jesus believed it is true. Now, you might say, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe the Bible's true. Really? What kind of Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Jesus in the New Testament who believed that the Bible is true? Now, help me understand how you can believe in Jesus and how Jesus could be so wrong about the Bible and you could be so right. Some people might think, but it's filled with contradictions. Show me one. And then show me another one. I got to tell you, Dr. Geisler was here and he reminded us that there are difficulties in the Bible. There are problems and difficulties. But whenever I've had a problem with the Bible, I've discovered something that most of the problems are resolved rather easily. And the major problems I had with the Bible, the Bible wasn't the problem at all. I was the problem. He says that the testimony of Jesus, number two, fulfilled prophecies. Number three, the unity of the book. Number four, the exalted teaching in comparison to every other book. Number five, the history of the book, its ability to survive burning and banning and doubt and skepticism. Number six, the character of those who accept the book. And the character of those who reject the book. Number seven, The Bible's influence. Number eight, the inexhaustible depth of the book. Number nine, our growth and knowledge and holiness as we believe the book and follow the book. And number 10, the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit about this book. Someone once said, lay hold of the Bible until the Bible lays hold on you. You've heard of the wonders of the world. I've had the privilege of traveling to many great places and seeing some marvelous things. I've seen the pyramids of Egypt. I've looked at the Temple Mount. I've rode in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. There are wonders all over this world. But there's nothing more wonderful than the word of God. The wonder of its formation, the wonder of its unity, the wonder of its antiquity, the wonder of its ability to be read and understood and loved in every generation. The wonder of what it what its interests contain, the wonder of its language, the wonder of its preservation. If I never go another place ever again. But I'm able to open up this Bible. It will take me to heaven. And it will keep me from hell. And it'll do the same for you. If you'll let it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. And again, we thank you for the word made flesh. Lord, we know that many, many people don't love the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. And because they don't love the Bible and they don't believe the Bible, they can't receive the object of the believers of the of the Bible's message, Jesus. But Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is filled with doubt. And maybe that doubt is even moving to the area of outright unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would put a chip. A crack. A tiny fissure in their heart 
Lord, we know that the powerful word of God can work on the most hardened heart. It can break the seal of unbelief and flood a person with hope. I wonder if God could love me. I wonder if God could save me. I wonder if God would provide for me a place in heaven. Lord, speak to that person's heart. Tell them the truth about Jesus, how he loves them, how he died for them, how he rose from the dead, and how he is alive to change hearts even now. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would pour your spirit out on this place and on these people. And that, Lord, we would love you and serve you and believe you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.